We love you, Lord. We just pray that you would bless Ezra as he brings this message to us this morning, Lord. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we do pray this morning. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Team. Hi, everybody. Hello. My name is Ezra. If you haven't met me before. And uh, I uh, am a youth leader here in the area. And uh, I really wanted to talk about the kingdom of God. It's something that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about, the kingdom of God. And uh, it can sometimes be sort of a nebulous concept for a lot of people. They're like, okay, I've heard it. Sometimes you hear something, a phrase, over and over again enough that it just loses its meaning and you have no idea. Uh, what it's about. But I really want to talk about the kingdom of God and in some ways just contrast it with what other kingdom is there? You know, what are we living in if, if not the kingdom of God? And so I want to read this passage from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. as just kind of a little glimpse. Uh, Jesus said, Oh yeah, um, Luke says, uh, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Other trans- translations or ways to translate that would say, The kingdom of God is among you. It was just touching down. We get little glimpses of it. There's another, um, there's a prayer when just Jesus' disciples asked him uh, what, you know, how they should pray. You might be familiar with it if you've gone to church for long enough, gone to a church where they would repeat this, or you'd do it in unison, depending on the translation you've got. You might trip up when they say trespasses or debtors. But in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus says to his disciples, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then I remember, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen but it's not in this translation. So, um, in that verse, it, it mentions uh, the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's kind of a glimpse of talking about the kingdom of God. You know, there's a difference. We'll notice uh, in some verses of the, um, in, uh, in the Gospels, it'll refer to the kingdom of heaven. In other verses, it'll say the kingdom of God. Most, I think more references are to the kingdom of God. But you can use those phrases interchangeably. So today, I wanted to kind of rapid fire go through sort of a, a, a list of just examples that kind of came to mind as I was going through scripture. Of, uh, I just, I'm like, sometimes I'm just like, what are some practical applications of what, what do we do with this information? Once we get a sense of what the kingdom of God is. Um, what are some practical principles for living this kingdom reality on earth? Because 
there are some people in the faith who, who just say, like, the world is all about suffering and hardship and sadness, and we just tolerate it as suffering servants until one way we die, and then we can celebrate in glory. And that's one way of looking at things, but I think Jesus had a little different focus because he wanted us to realize that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, can be here now. As we obey God's commands, as we live out the character that can still feel a little bit like a suffering servant when you live it out because it doesn't come naturally to us. Sometimes people that have the worst behavior will say things like, I'm just being real. <laughs> I'm just keeping it real. I'm, I'm living out, you know, I'm, I'm being who I am. And, um, and that's, there's a little bit of, of uh, a difference between that and what God is calling us to. He's calling us to, to step up to living in the kingdom reality that, that he's calling us to. It's not an easy thing, but everyone in this world benefits when we, when we do this. So the first point I want to say is God is good all the time. You might have heard that. You might respond with, uh, what would be your response to God is good all the time? All the time. God is good. Yes. Um, so the first, so I was like, oh, I'm going to look up the word good in the Bible. A little search thing. And it just so happens that when you look in order from Genesis uh, the first seven times the word good shows up, the first six times it's referring to God's work, his creation. You know, this is good, this is good, he, he made this, this is good. And the seventh time he made something that was very good. And I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. He said very good for the sixth day. Why is it seven? Oh, well, there's, there's two for animals. There's a lot of animals. So, so... So God made all these things that are good, and the last thing that he made was the crown of his creation. It's very good. So God, he's the, he's the true creator, the best of our artists, the best of our craftspeople. We're crafting from materials that God created. We're crafters at best, but God's the creator. He can create from nothing. Try that. <laughs> um, and the most amazing things that are a result of some of our actions involve life. You know, a human child being born is miraculous. And we can say that's very good. And so in some ways I kind of like just humorously thought about it. Like what, are the, what is unique about good versus very good? And I thought, you know, when, when you look through old photos, you know, you're from like ancestors, relatives or something, you're flipping through photos, and there's some photos that are worth keeping, if you've got like a whole basement full of photos, and some photos that aren't worth keeping. And what would you say is the thing that makes a photo worth keeping or not worth keeping? The ones you might think, I don't really care about this, are photos of just like landscapes, <laughs> your dinner. But a photo with somebody's face in it has some value, like who is that? What's the history of that? We care about people. And maybe it's because they're made in the image of God. And so God's creating all these things, and then he gets to very good. And this is made in God's own image. So this is like the, the first selfie right here, <laughs> where God's like, 
Very good. See, he's in the picture, you know? And so, you know, you look at a, sel- a picture with a selfie in it, and you're like, oh, I've got a sense of who made this, because they're including themselves in this picture. And so God, you know, humanity, I would uh, say is maybe, maybe the first selfie. God started it. So by the seventh day, in Genesis 2-2, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So when I say God is good all the time, I want to, uh, to really think about God is good in this, in this example. He's good through, and he's showing it through what he has done with his hands, what he has worked. And so if you, if you are retired or if you're unemployed, you might think, well, I'm not working, but we have work. Just because you don't have a paycheck, you still have meaningful work. And maybe you have a job, you're like, well, this pays the bills but I'm not passionate about it necessarily. It just kind of, it, it covers that. But I have this other thing that is meaningful to me, and that's your good work. And so I feel like we kind of starve and we wither away when we don't have good work or something we can look at and say, I am proud of what I've done here. And some of us might be in tr- transition and we're like, I'm looking for the next good work because I'm feeling that, that sense of absence. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Exodus 20 verse 9 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And so a warning I want to put here is that we should not attach our identity to a tool, to a career, to a job, or even a role. You might have a chapter in your life where you're like, I have to do this. This is what I have to do. This is my responsibility. Um, and that's fine to have responsibility, but don't make that your identity because once that role passes, a different chapter of your life happens, you could have that sense of like, who am I? And we shouldn't struggle with that because Jesus Christ gives us that identity. Your identity is connected to a person, that's Jesus Christ. So my advice is that God does very good work that he is proud of, And we should be proud of the work that we do as well. Number two, God creates margin. In Leviticus 23, 22, you didn't think I'd be pulling Leviticus out this morning, maybe. But it's relevant. Uh, It says, this is is instructions for um, an agricultural society, the Israelites. He's giving them guidelines uh, for many different reasons. And he says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So he's like not kidding about this. He's like, do it this way. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. This is Paul writing to the, uh, the church in Corinth. I also want to recommend reading in Ruth chapter 2 about gleaning after the harvesters. Ruth was someone whose husband had died, so she had no, no one to take care of her in that society. You know, everyone didn't just equally make the same wages or have the same opportunities. And so she was coming into a town where she was a foreigner, and it was this very law that you don't reap to the edges of your field and you let, 
the poor or the, the foreigner pick up whatever you didn't pick up. So you get one pass through the field to harvest, and anything that you missed, the poor people could pick that up. So they actually had to go and pick it up. You didn't go to deliver it to them. So they had some, some work to do. But, but it was there. You didn't go back a second time to pick up all the little bits because there is, there is that sense of I need to have an allowance. I need to have some, some, uh, some generosity because you understand that there are people who don't have the same opportunities. They're not in the same place as you are. So he invites us to create margin as part of just the way that we live. So um, if you read Ruth chapter 2, it shows an example of how the poor were offered a way to meet their needs with dignity through work, to collect what was left after the harvesters. Another thought I was thinking about was um, that we shouldn't accept the lie that says you can't have too much of a good thing. More isn't always better. And excess can cause stress. My advice is that God sets extra aside to be generous, and we should too. Point number three, God looks out for the marginalized. I was like, I had margin on my mind. I was like, <laughs> sitting in the margins of your field, with people on the outskirts. Um, but then God looks out for the marginalized. So it's kind of segues right into this. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. In James 1.27 it says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I love that passage. It's just like, if you, if you wanted to take out all the guesswork, this, like if you want to be religious, be religious in this way. Not in the way where you're just like, you know, more, more liturgy and more like, you know, spiritual flexing to say, look at how religious I am. But do it in a way that matters to the people who, um, who, need, who need that support. Community has power. Thought. Don't create too much space between you and those God cares for. The Spirit often moves through our own discomfort. One of the things that I noticed is that if I, if I take like public transit, you see a different group of people than if you drive in a single car with all your comforts and your layers around you. Even riding my bicycle around town, I see a little bit more, I hear a little bit more of the communities that I'm kind of going through. And sometimes just having a little bit less distance or a little bit less insulation can make us aware to the places where people have need or where there's people and situations that otherwise we wouldn't even know. And so my advice is that God 
looks out for the marginalized, and we should too. Number four, God makes rest our priority. In Exodus 20, verses 10 and 11, it says, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is very different than the way that the world might suggest. Some of us might say, well, hold on, the world gives us two days for a weekend. Like, that's, that's two days you're not working, right? Well, I don't know. When I'm not at work, a lot of times I have more work to do at home. I might be working harder, breaking a sweat more on that Saturday versus the Monday through Friday where I have, like, breaks and, you know, different union protections at my job. Um, and then a lot of people, they, they catch up things on Sunday. People that aren't at church are looking for other stuff to do that, you know, might be wear, wearing them down as well. Or they're just burning their candle at both ends because, you know, the cost of living is so high that a lot of people are like, how will I ever be able to live in the Bay Area, for example, uh, without just working my fingers to the bone? But God's kingdom gives us a new, a new challenge, a different challenge, which is, you know, work in a meaningful way for six days, whatever that means for you, and then save a day for rest. But really rest, like rest in such a way that you're better ready for work that next day. Not in a way that exhausts you. I've done vacations before where someone has scheduled so many itemized things. We're going here. We're getting the fast pass for this. We're going doing all that kind of thing. You're on your feet 20,000 steps every day. And then you finally, you're like, man, I can't wait till I get to go home and go to work. <laughs> and finally relax. Don't rest like that. Rest looks different for each of us, depending on what our work looks like. Number five, God expects the miraculous to happen. Faith is a big deal. I really like this verse in John chapter 7, verses 21, verse 21, where Jesus is reacting to somebody. He says, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. <laughs> Jesus wasn't astonished when miracles happened. He knew that God was capable of it. He knew God was way bigger than anything anyone has ever seen. And maybe in our minds, our God is too small. And that's the struggle that we have. So a thought, don't accept the lie that miracles don't, won't happen. Faith is a practice that surprises only those who don't have it. So work that muscle of trusting God, of putting faith out there, and saying, God, help me. So Jesus expects miracles to happen according to God's will. We should expect that too. And so maybe you're like, well, this is really hard though. If I don't have faith, how do I get it? Um, I'm encouraged by the verse in Mark 9, chapter 24, where Jesus is asking him if he believes. And he's struggling with that. But the father uh, said to, um, well, I'll just read the verse. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, 
I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe that should be your prayer. If you struggle with that, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. You know, I know this is not a constant for all of us. Sometimes we have things that challenge our beliefs. We, it kind of dips and then it comes back, comes back. We have our mountains and our valleys in life. And God understands that. He's ready to take that if you reach out to him in prayer. Just come clean to him. Question. Could we be instinctively leaning on financing or credit to replace the waiting and prayer we would otherwise need to do when a physical need arises? So when you're challenged with faith, some of us, we don't give God a chance for us to struggle with the how will this need be met if you've got this this fast-talking commercial or salesperson coming to you saying, I can, I can meet your needs through this many payments for 10 years. Um, but if we say yes to that too often, we're shooting ourselves in the, in the foot. We're damaging our future situation, and we're not giving a chance to lean on God for His way of meeting our needs, or even our community. If, 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 a car, if our car breaks down... And we're like, how am I going to get to work? But I go straight to the dealership and buy a brand new car. But I could have come to my community and said, hey, I need a ride or I need something. And then you can kind of see the benefits of having, uh, having, the, having community and people to pray for you. There can be creative ways to solve problems and God works through his people. Number six, God is patient with us. We're not always very patient with ourselves or with each other, are we? In 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Sometimes when we're saved, when we've got what we think is a right relationship with God, we can become less patient with those who are not. And we're like, well, I'm in. Let's go, God. When are you coming back? But if you're the person who doesn't grasp that, who, doesn't, who hasn't heard the gospel, and you knew what this was all about, you would be so thankful that God waited for you. They didn't, you know, say, clapperboard's coming down. The film is over. Um... I'm so glad that God waited for me. That he extended his grace as long as I was still immature, which feels like an eternity, I'm sure, for my parents. <laughs> my teenage years, as I'm just like uh, struggling through this and that. Um, but I'm glad God was patient with me. Have you ever thought about how hard it is to wait for people you don't like or maybe people you don't know? Someone who's in front of you in traffic, who seems to be taking a lot longer to make their decision about going when the light turns green. But it might be a little bit easier to wait for those that we love. You're like, oh, well, actually, it's hard to wait for those we love, too. But it's different for people that you actually dislike. Maybe that's why Jesus asked us to love our enemies, because there's, there's some chance to be patient with that, and that's a way to, to uh, be a witness to them. So the challenge is God is patient, and we should be too. Another thing to ask God for prayer for. And number seven, 
God is good all the time. Wait, hold on. Wasn't that the first point? All the time God is good. Yeah, that was the first point too, but it, it deserves repeating. But God is good in so many ways. And here's another way that God is good. He is good because he shows us his love through sacrifice. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John 15, 12 through 14 says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much and in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So my thought is this. If we respect those who died honorably for a worthy cause, that's great. That's great. We do that. We honor those who have laid down their lives in service, um, in sacrifice, fighting oppression, fighting for liberty, all sorts of causes. But we should also acknowledge and honor uh, the ongoing impact of those who live that way while they're still alive. Because you could always see when someone dies doing the right, honorable thing, we can celebrate them forever. <laughs> Because they ended on a, on a good note. But if, but if you or I does an honorable thing, we might mess up the next moment. We might mess up the next day, and then, it, and then we, you might feel weird about celebrating that person at that point. But the ongoing impact of staying alive and doing God's will means that the kingdom of God can be here on earth like it is in heaven. And we can teach others, we can model that in a way that um, is still alive. Our obedience to God is really being a living sacrifice. We're, we're on that altar, but we have the ability to crawl right off, unlike a dead sacrifice. And so God calls us to that harder thing of being alive on the altar. And we do that on the earth. So the challenge is God loves us. We should love God. We should love others, and we should love ourselves too. Because God loves us. We should agree with Him. So my closing thought is uh, that it's easy to say what we should do, but it's harder to actually do it. So how can we do all of this? In Luke 17, 21, it says, Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. We aren't meant to do all of this on our own power or determination as individuals. We're meant to do this together. And the challenge is let's strengthen and encourage each other to do this stuff as a community. In Luke twenty-two forty-six, Jesus says to his disciples, why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. We need to get up and pray. Observation is 
kingdom of God has a different pace, a different set of priorities, and a different purpose than the kingdom of this world and the culture around us. In Ephesians 6.12 it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. So let's pray and live like this together, knowing that there's not just one kingdom. There are at least two. And we want to support the growth and the domination of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and through love and through very different counterintuitive ways. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you came to earth. You showed us the kingdom of heaven. You showed us the kingdom of God. You taught about the kingdom of God. You made it very clear that the kingdom of God isn't welcomed by this world. But we're welcoming it, Lord. We're welcoming the kingdom of God to live within our hearts, to live through our community. And we're not going to try to do this as lone rangers, just one at a time. We're going to rally together and live out your kingdom in a way that impacts the community around us, this world, in a way that makes you proud. Thank you so much, God. Amen. Amen. I want to thank Ezra for uh, delivering a strong message for us today, so make sure you uh, thank him afterwards. Um, if you are all, if you're seated, you can stand up for a second. And let me give a uh, closing benediction as we go forth. May the grace of Christ, which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body, make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Church, have a wonderful week. And I look forward to seeing you.